Well, it's good to be together this morning, isn't it? Just to sing and to worship the Lord and now to get into his word. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are uh, in a study of this uh, epic gospel, uh, John's gospel. And uh, we are uh, in John chapter 8, and we are going to be looking at verses 48 through 59 this morning. And uh, oftentimes the, the, the section or portion that we look at is too long to read at the beginning, um, and so I don't take the time to do that. But this morning I'd like to read this text because it's only a few verses, and so you can follow along in your Bibles as I read John chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Jesus, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God, and you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Father, we thank you for another opportunity just to come before you and your word. We thank you for the gospels and how they're just, uh, just mainline Jesus. And uh, it's just straight out of the mouth of Christ. And uh, thank you for uh, the privilege we have to hear the words of Christ through the pages of Scripture today. I pray that Christ's words would impact our lives. Lord, that you would save those who need to be saved, that you would sanctify those who need to be sanctified today. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whenever two opponents or... Two opposing groups are engaged in some kind of public discourse. There's a tendency for one of uh, of the groups or both of the opponents to demonize the other. Uh, To demonize another person or group goes beyond just saying that they're wrong. It portrays them as being wicked. And all all too often, discussions uh, deteriorate into smear campaigns and character assassinations of those with whom we disagree. And it usually happens when you can't think of how to respond to someone's argument. You, you have no way of countering their claims, and so re- you resort to demonizing them. And the goal when we demonize someone is to vilify them to the point that it creates some sort of social panic so that no one would believe anything they have to say or follow them in their beliefs. Oftentimes when those in power feel threatened by a person or a group, Uh, They will demonize them in order to control the masses and to maintain their power. And that's exactly what 
the Jewish religious leaders did to Jesus. They felt threatened by his growing popularity throughout Israel. They didn't know how to counter his claims that he was God's son who fulfilled all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And so they literally demonized Jesus. They accused him of being possessed by a demon. In those days, when you accused someone of being demon-possessed, it was equivalent to saying that they were crazy, that they were, they were insane, they were out of their mind, they, they were a madman. And so the Pharisees wanted the Jewish people to think that Jesus was a madman, that he needed his head examined, just like we would think about someone today who claimed to be from outer space. I mean, how, how would you respond if somebody came up to you and said, yeah, I'm from outer space? And you'd be like, okay, this guy's crazy, Right? Or how about this, even more outlandish, that he was the Messiah. Imagine some guy coming saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. David Koresh, for example, right? I'm the Messiah. Crazy man, right? That's, what we, that's how we respond. Or how about this, that I'm God? Well, guess, let's face it. I mean, it wouldn't be hard to convince the society in Jesus' day that he was a wacko, that he was a weirdo who needed to be taken away by the men in the white coats. And this morning, we're going to see how this conversation, this public discourse between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders culminated either on the last day of the Feast of Booths or the day or two after. We know that the discussion started back in verse 12 here in chapter 8, and it just grew more and more heated, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks as uh, the Pharisees grew more and more agitated in response to what Jesus said to them and about them. And and Jesus didn't have very nice things to say about the Pharisees. Uh, He accused them of breaking the law of Moses, which they were uh, all about keeping uh, the law, protecting the law, but they were plotting to kill him. So he said, you're breaking your own law. Uh, He judged them uh, for judging him superficially and self-righteously. He said that they were walking in the darkness, that they were being worldly, which again, uh, a Pharisee was all about keeping himself pure and set apart from the world. And so to say that they were worldly was a great offense to them. Uh, He said that they didn't know God, uh, they were not able to go to heaven, that they were going to die in their sins and go to hell because they were enslaved to their sin. Just a few things he shared with them, right? And uh, his indictment of of these religious leaders reached its climax in verse 44. Remember this last week when he openly identified them as sons of Satan. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so he was essentially calling them a bunch of murderers and a bunch of liars, and they were enemies of God just like their father, the devil. Well, obviously that struck a nerve <laughs> with the Pharisees. And yet, instead of repenting of their sin and embracing Jesus as their Lord and Savior, these spiritually blind, self-righteous hypocrites chose rather to ridicule him. And they responded to Jesus' allegation that they were of their father, the devil, like a bratty little kid responds when they're called a name. You probably remember when you were a little kid, you might have 
said this or you've heard your children say this. Somebody called you a name or you, somebody, you know, your kids get calls a name and, and your only response is, well, I know you are, but what am I? You ever heard that? Well, well, I know you are, but what am I? Like, that's really not a response, okay? You're basically saying you have no clue what to say, so you're like, I know you are, but what am I? And so basically that's what the Pharisees were doing is, uh, is, 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 I know you are, but what am I? We're not of the devil, you are, right? You're sons of Satan. He goes, well, no, you're, you have a demon. You're, you're the one who is not of God. He had just got done saying the reason why they couldn't understand anything he had to say. He said in verse 47, you are not of God. And so there's basically, well, we're, we're, we're of God. You're the one that's not of God. And so we're going to see how Jesus responded to the Pharisees' childish counterattack by reaffirming that if anyone followed him and obeyed him, that they would have eternal life because he truly was God's son. And this is verified, the fact, that fact is verified in this passage uh, in three ways. And there's really basically three exchanges that take place between the Pharisees and Jesus. They go back and forth three times. And we see three proofs or evidences that Jesus is indeed God's son. In verses 48 to 51, we see how he promised life after death. In verses 52 through 56, we see how he performed his father's will. That's number two. And then the third proof in verses 57 to 59 is he preexisted with God in heaven. So let's look at these three evidences that Jesus is the son of God who has the authority to grant people eternal life. Number one, he promised life after death. Verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Again, the Pharisees couldn't refute the charges against them by Jesus, and so they resorted to calling him names. And they were outraged by the fact that he had called them children of Satan, so they lashed out and called him a Samaritan and accused him of being possessed by a demon. You say, well, that doesn't sound that bad. At least the Samaritan part. Big whoop you do. I'm a Samaritan. <laughs> that hurts, right? Well, in those days, there was no greater insult that a Jew could use against another Jew than to be called a Samaritan. It was really an ethnic slur that implied that you were not a pure Jew, that you were an enemy of Israel. John MacArthur does a great job just summarizing the, the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans in that day, and we've talked about this a number of times, but let me just read his summary to kind of bring us to this point. He said, quote, the Jews despise the Samaritans as physical and spiritual half-breeds. Samaritans were the descendants of Jews who had remained in the northern kingdom after its fall and intermarried with pagans transplanted there by the Assyrians. When the Samaritans offered to help rebuild the temple after the exile, the Jews refused and the Samaritans were insulted. The bitter rivalry between the two groups only intensified throughout the intertestamental period. That's the time between the Old and New Testament. By Jesus' day, the mutual animosity was so great that the Jews avoided dealing with the Samaritans altogether. Some refused even to travel through Samaria. Remember, that was why it was such a big deal that Jesus had to go through Samaria, right, to reach that woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Some Samaritans reciprocated by denying any hospitality to the Jews who did travel through the region. Jesus, however, was no respecter of racial barriers. He first revealed himself as a Messiah to a Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, and also used a Samaritan to illustrate a good neighbor, the good 
Samaritan, right? So the point is that by calling Jesus a Samaritan, the leaders of the Jews were essentially calling him a heretic, a false teacher, an apostate. And like the Samaritans, they accused Jesus of not being true, uh, being a true child of Abraham, uh, of not agreeing with them the way they interpreted the law, and siding with the Samaritans. They, you're on their side. You're not on our side. You're on their side. Why are you so friendly with these people? Why do you mention them in positive lights? And we know they were already questioning his origin. Remember back in verse 41, they, they really kind of jabbed him and said, we are not born of fornication. We have one Father God. In other words, yeah, we don't, we're not sure about where you came from, Jesus. We heard this crazy story about, you know, you, know, you being uh, conceived by, uh, you know, from a virgin, right? A virgin birth. That's just crazy. Um, you're an illegitimate child. You were born out of wedlock. Well, they took their blasphemous accusations one step further. If calling him a Samaritan wasn't enough, they insisted that he was demon-possessed. They said, you have a demon, which was the same slanderous charge that they uh, leveled against John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus mentioned this back in Matthew chapter 11 Verse 18, when he was talking about John the Baptist, he said this, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And so I guess that was a convenient response whenever somebody showed up in town that didn't go along with the Pharisees, they would just write him off as, oh, that guy's just demon-possessed. It's a convenient way to minimize somebody's uh, uh, words and, and actions. Now, this wasn't the first time Jesus was accused of having a demon, nor would it be the last uh, the crowds had mentioned this in, in John chapter 7, verse 20, when he talked about uh, some people seeking to kill him, and the crowd said, you have a demon, who seeks to kill you? Apparently, they didn't know what their religious leaders were planning to do at the time. Later on in chapter 10, John chapter 10, verse 20, many of them were saying, he has a demon and is, and is insane. Why do you listen to him? And again, the, the, the say someone had a demon was to say that they were insane, that, that they were, you know, because demon-possessed people don't act rationally. They don't act sanely. They often act irrationally. And that's why you avoided someone that was demon-possessed in those days because you never know what he would say, what he would do, and people were freaked out by him, and they just avoided him as much as possible. And so they were trying to get people just to avoid Jesus. I mean, come on. No one in their right mind would make the ludicrous, ludicrous claims that he was making. So obviously he's demon-possessed. Come on. Guy can't be serious. Well, notice how Jesus has responded here to these accusations. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Notice he doesn't retaliate. He doesn't necessarily defend himself in the way that we tend to, Right? when we get falsely accused, but he graciously and bluntly responded to the Pharisees' accusations and, and in doing so left us a model, left us an example to follow. In fact, I believe that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, was, was there witnessing this event and this interchange between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. And listen to how James or how Peter, uh, I think, later on in life described Events like this that he witnessed uh, Jesus um, responding to a false accusation. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, he says, You've been called 
for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. What's his example? He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept him trusting himself to him who judges righteously. And so we hear Jesus uh, had just asked the Pharisees uh, if anyone could accuse him of any kind of sin, verse 46, um, which they couldn't. And then when he had an opportunity to revile them in return, um, he didn't. Um, He simply declared that he wasn't possessed by a demon, but he was possessed by a desire to honor his father. And uh, we've seen this over and over again so far in the Gospel of John about Jesus' desire to honor his dad. Uh, How about just verse 29, John chapter 8, right there, just look back a page or a few verses. John chapter 8, verse 29 And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And so it was not a demonic power, but divine honor that drove Jesus. I mean, no demon-possessed person could possibly honor God. They wouldn't want to honor God, and they, they, they wouldn't honor God. And yet the Pharisees, on the other hand, according to Jesus, were dishonoring God. Because they were dishonoring him. And he was God's son. And how can you honor the father if you don't honor his son, right? And so they were dishonoring the very God they claimed to know and serve. Because they failed to receive him as God's son. Notice verse 50. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. In other words, Jesus was not seeking his own glory, but the glory of his father, Uh, He was confident that God, who is the ultimate judge, would would vindicate him in his way and in his time and eventually punish those who failed to glorify him as as God's beloved son. We know that that God did do that. Paul mentions this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. It says how God raised Christ from the dead seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in the age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection to his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And then I love how he says it in Philippians, a more familiar passage, probably Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. For this reason, what reason? The reason that Jesus was willing to, to lay aside his glory in heaven and come down to earth, take on the form of a man, and be humbled to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those are in, who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, those Pharisees know now that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. They know now. And uh, even in hell, people will be forced to confess that Jesus is indeed the Lord and Master of the universe. Look at verse 51. Another epic statement of Jesus. If you don't have this underline in your Bible or starred, you might want to do that right now. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, when Jesus said truly, truly, 
That means listen up. I'm about to say something very important that you don't want to miss. This was a way to emphasize uh, the importance of, of, of a statement. And so truly, truly, I say to you, and you should all be going, okay, I'm ready. What is he going to say? Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. By the way, these are words which only could be uttered by one who was God himself, because only one has the power over death, and that is God. And Jesus, as you remember, told them earlier in this conversation that they would die in their sins because of their unbelief. And yet here he, again, graciously invited them to trust him and obey his word so that they wouldn't have to die in their sins and go to hell. We know here that Jesus wasn't just referring to physical death because there's many Christians who have died, right, who will die every day. Believers die. Uh, He's obviously referring here to spiritual death, right? Those who believe in him are delivered from death and hell. They'll never experience that separation from God for all eternity. Why? Because Jesus is the giver of life. And he has said that from the very beginning of this gospel, John recorded in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Very familiar verse. Chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Chapter 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Verse 50. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Again, the eating and drinking was kind of a a gross concept for them in that day, but he's basically saying, if you receive me, you take me into your life, you'll have eternal life. And then, of course, in John chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he made another epic promise Uh, another I am statement, we'll get to John John 11, verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And we know this is all, this is the whole reason why John wrote this gospel. John chapter 20, verse 31. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God And that believing you may have what? Life in his name. And so here Jesus' statement back in John chapter 8, when he said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, is just another way of expressing that very, 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 very important truth that eternal life results not just from believing in Jesus, but obeying Jesus, okay? This is very, very important. We talked about this, that there's a whole lot of people in the church today who think, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, right? But you would never know it by the pattern of their life, that there's no pattern of obedience in their lives. They don't follow the commands of Scripture. They don't observe all that Christ commanded. 
And we, we, we kind of hit on this back in John chapter 3, verse 36, where John says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In other words, believing and obeying are synonymous terms. To believe, to truly believe, means that you live a life of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, if you keep my word, again, that's evidence that you truly know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You don't get to heaven by being a good person, by your obedience. That's just evidence that you are saved, that you're on your way to heaven. And so we see this first evidence that Jesus is indeed God's son because he promised life after death. Secondly, he performed his father's will. He performed his father's will. Look at verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. In other words, now we know for sure. You have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? In other words, who in the world do you think you are? So they were more convinced than ever that Jesus was demonically deranged and demented because he was claiming to be greater than the patriarchs and the prophets. I mean, in their minds, what he said was, was impossible since the patriarchs and, and, and the prophets were all dead. And then even though it was unthinkable to them, it was true that all that God did through the patriarchs and the prophets in the Old Testament was summed up and exceeded by Jesus Christ, God's Son. The writer of Hebrews mentions this at the very beginning of his letter to the Jews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power talking about God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus had every right to claim that he was greater than and better than Abraham and all the prophets, because unlike them, he could deliver himself and other people from death. They didn't have that ability. They didn't have that power. And yet the Jews reacted to what they considered to be audacious claims of Christ with absolute astonishment. Who, what in the world? Do, who do you think you are? I mean, you just, I, can't even, I can't even believe that you would say that. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. Where do, you, where do you come up with this stuff? You're a lunatic. You're a nut job. It's basically what they were thinking and what they wanted everybody else to think to minimize Christ. Notice how he responds. Jesus answered in verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, and you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. So the Jews just assumed that Jesus was out for himself, trying to get glory for himself, but that wasn't the case at all. It was his Father God the one they claimed to know who was glorifying him and exalting him and giving him the power to do what he was doing. 
And so this was the irony of this whole situation is that, that here were a group of men claiming to know and serve God while at the very same time they were dishonoring and rejecting his son, which was evidence that it was they who were actually demonically deranged and demented. That they were the ones that were irrational at this point. And Jesus just said, listen, if I deny the fact that I'm God's son and that I know him intimately, I would have to be a liar. I would have to be like you and lie, which I can't because I'm God. And not only did he know God perfectly or intimately, he obeyed him perfectly. He obeyed him perfectly. We already read verse 29 again, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And then look at verse 56. This is a very interesting verse. He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So if you remember, the Jews wanted to keep bringing Abraham into the argument, right? As if that was going to bolster their case and say, Hey, what are you talking about? We're, we're, we're the children of Abraham. Abraham's our father. I mean, it was all about being a, a Jew and being a father, or being a son of Abraham, a child of Abraham. We're, we're the children of Israel. We're the children of Abraham. And they kind of used that as a, as a badge, you know, like, hey, we're, we're in. We're good. We're on our way to heaven. We're the, we're the children of Abraham, sons of Abraham. And so Jesus says, okay, you want to talk about Abraham? I'll talk about Abraham. He said, Abraham welcomed my coming with great joy. And had actually seen him. In fact, he, he actually saw me. This is Jesus talking. Right? He actually saw me through the eyes of faith. You're like, okay, that's kind of weird. Help me understand that a little bit better. Well, turn over to the book of Hebrews, because this is where we get some insight into what Jesus was getting at here. Hebrews chapter 11, this is the hall of faith, right? All the, the, the acts of faith that the great men and women of the Old Testament uh, performed. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, it says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, talking about the promises of the future of Israel, particularly the coming of the Messiah. They all died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. Even though they never saw the fulfillment of those things, they believed those things. By faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, right? They, they believed. They, they went to the grave banking on the fact that that was going to happen. And then notice what he says about Abraham, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who he had received, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Hint, hint, hint. That sounds familiar? Okay, hang on to that thought. It was he to whom it was said, and Isaac, your descendant, shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a, what does your Bible say? As a type or what? Illustration, yeah. Interesting concept here that, that Abraham believed God's promises to him that the Messiah would come through his descendants. Genesis chapter 12, 
Right? He said, listen, I'm going to, through your seed, I'm going to give you a son, and through that son and through your, your descendants will come the Messiah, will come the deliverer, not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. And the entire world will be blessed through your descendants. And so Abraham believed those promises, and he began to see the fulfillment of, of this covenant that God had made with him when God blessed he and his barren wife Sarah with their son Isaac. And then God put it to the test, right? Then God put Abraham to the test and said, I want to see if you really believe me. And so he told Abraham to go kill Isaac to see what he would do. Because naturally you would think, well, wait a minute, God, you promised me this son that through him would come the Messiah, and now you're telling me to kill him? That makes absolutely no sense, right? Is that how Abraham responded? No, Abraham said, okay, I'll do that. I'll tr- I trust you. And it says he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. So it took a lot of faith, right, to tie your son, your beloved son, your one and only son, right, on this altar and and to raise this knife and ready to plunge it. It took a lot of faith to do that. But he was believing that somehow God was going to raise him from the dead because he believed that it was through that son that this Messiah would come. And so, of course, he stopped Abraham once he saw that he truly believed in him and had faith in him. And when Abraham willingly offered Isaac, though, on that altar, in obedience to God's command, he was given a vivid object lesson of the death and resurrection of the coming Messiah. Because you remember, when he was ready to plunge that knife into his son, God said, stop. And next thing you know, there's this ram stuck by his horns in the bushes, right? And he provided a, what? A substitute. So I'm going to take Isaac's place on that altar as a sacrifice, which, again, was a picture of the drama of redemption, that God's plan was to to have this sacrificial lamb, right, who would die in the place of sinners to provide redemption, and this thing was just played out before Abraham's very eyes. He saw this whole thing go down on Mount Moriah. One other commentator that I respect, Homer Kent, suggests that it was maybe how he saw this. Jesus said that he saw him. Um, It may have been that through one of the visions that God had given Abraham, it says in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, that God appeared to Abraham in a vision and spoke to him. And it may have been that he gave uh, Abraham more specific details about the coming of the Messiah than are recorded in the Old Testament. That could be true. But I think he had enough to go, go on just from what he, what he saw with his own two eyes, right, on Mount Moriah. And so here Jesus is just claiming to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises that were given to Abraham concerning the Messiah. He was the one that Abraham looked forward to with great joy. He performed the will of God. He lived out the will of God. Well, there's a third evidence here that Jesus is the Son of God, and that is he preexisted with God in heaven. He preexisted with God in heaven. Notice verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Again, notice their spiritual ignorance here. Jesus didn't say that he had seen Abraham, right? He said Abraham had seen him. But they immediately protested that Jesus wasn't old enough to, to have seen Abraham. And don't think that that this is a a good age marker here for Christ. 
Uh, you say, I didn't know Jesus was 50 years old or even 48 or 45. I thought he was 33, right? You're right. He was in his 30s, okay? Luke chapter 3, verse 23 says, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. So the tradition, uh, the traditional time frame of Jesus' life and ministry is that he was born somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C., and then was crucified sometime in AD 33. And so Jesus was not 50. That was just a good round number, right, for them to pick off the top of their head. You're not even 50 yet. And you're saying you saw, you saw Abraham? Verse, verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, strap your seatbelts on, because here it comes. Before Abraham was born, I am. And it's almost like you need some dramatic music right here. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and that, that was very dramatic. I mean, you, you, I'm sure that the, the Pharisees' jaws dropped. Going, I, I, this guy is, I can't believe this guy. Is there no end to this guy's maniacal, you know, things that will come out of this guy's mind? Now he's, he's claiming the name of Jehovah God in the Old Testament. I mean, this was an, an, an emphatic declaration of his deity. Again, truly, truly. In other words, heads up, what I'm about to say is really important. You don't want to miss it. And I'm going to tell you this. Before Abraham was born, I am. And we know this was the name, right? We've talked about this a number of times recently uh, during this discussion because he, he kept talking, using this expression, I am. Uh, John highlights that here in the Gospel of John. But this was the original name that God uh, gave Moses to tell the Pharaoh and the people of Israel who sent him. He's like, hey, okay, God, you're telling me I'm going to go tell Pharaoh to let your people go. I'm going to tell the people of Israel that I've come to deliver them, that their God wants them to be freed from it. And they're like, well, whose God are you talking about? What God? And he says, so what's your name, God? I need a name. Come on, give me a name. Give me a name. He says, just tell him I am sent you. Okay, <laughs> I am. Uh, again, emphasizing the preexistent nature of God, the, the eternal nature of God, that he's always been, he always will be. And so Jesus applied this very phrase to himself throughout the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, and particularly in this chapter. Of course, we have the I am statements, right? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. But just in little ways, he says it um, for example, in verse um, 16, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Verse 23 and 24, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am and that he is added in the English translation, but it was just, I am, you will die in your sins. And then verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, I am, I am. That's what he's saying. You'll know that I'm God. And so the reason why Jesus referenced the, the I am phrase so often in this context, in this chapter that we've been looking at, 
is because it had become part of the liturgy of the Feast of Booths. In other words, it was part of the things they would recite, things they talk about uh, during this, this, this week-long celebration. Uh, a lot of references were back to the Old Testament and the concept of God being the I Am, and that's why he used it so often. He was wanting to make a connection. And so when he said, before Abraham was born, I am, in other words, he was claiming to have dwelt with God in eternity past. There was never a time when he didn't exist or when he came into being, he's always been and always will be. And someone wrote this, this phrase, before Abraham was born, I am, harbors within itself the most authentic, the most audacious, and the most profound affirmation by Jesus of who he was. In fact, when the high priest questioned Jesus in Mark chapter 14 during his trial, right before his crucifixion, the high priest got wind of the fact that he'd been running around calling himself I am. And so the high priest confronted him about that in verse 61. This is Mark 14, 61. He says, but he kept silent and did not answer. And again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And it wasn't just like, yeah, I am. No, it was like, I am. I am the God of the Old Testament, right? You shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and the coming with the clouds of heaven and tearing his clothes. The high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. I mean, that was an act. When the high priest heard blasphemy, he just, he just tear his robe. And the Jews responded in like manner in John chapter 8. Notice in verse 59. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. I mean, there was no question in their mind as to what Jesus was saying. They understood him perfectly. He was claiming to be God. Don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. Because he did. And those that knew him best and were there with him, right, the fact that they went and picked up stones, right, to kill him, they knew exactly what he was claiming. And they were so infuriated by, by his apparent blasphemy that they immediately wanted to execute him according to the law of Moses. And the law did say, Leviticus 24, 16, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And also notice, I think one of the, the clearest implications of Christ's divinity is the fact that then when they wanted to stone him on the spot, he never tried to correct them or stop them. I mean, listen, if I'm saying something to somebody and they misunderstand me and they get angry and they want to hurt me, not that they want to hurt me, but they, get, they misunderstand, they get angry and, and hostile, first thing I'm going to do is what? Whoa, 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 time out, time out. <laughs> You're misunderstanding. I didn't mean that, right? Especially if they're going to, you know, they pull out a gun or a knife and they want to kill me, I'm going to really say, whoa, 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 time out. That's not what I meant, right? That's what you would say. That's what I would say. But guess what? Jesus never said that. Why? Because he did mean what he said. So they picked up stones to throw at him. 
But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus may have disappeared into the crowd like he often did, just kind of slip away, just quickly move on. But there seems to be a sense here that uh, this was some kind of miraculous escape. There was something supernatural here, and again, we don't know, we're just reading between the lines here, but he could have somehow just disappeared. It's possible. But the point is, his hour to die had not yet come, and so they couldn't touch him. Again, John MacArthur says it well here in summarizing this account. He said, in the face of irrefutable evidence, the Pharisees were unwilling to accept that as God in human flesh, Jesus was incapable of committing blasphemy. Rather, all of his commands, or all of his claims, no matter how astonishing, were absolutely true. How ironic that the Jewish religious leaders seemingly so passionate for God's honor that they were ready to cast stones at a blasphemer were accusing God himself of blaspheming God. You think about that. They were accusing God himself of blaspheming God. Talk about turning the tables. Who, who was the crazy person? Who was the, the insane person? Right? It wasn't Jesus. It was them. Kind of like an episode of The Twilight Zone. I don't know if you like The Twilight Zone. I always like that. Every year they do like a 24-hour Twilight Zone thing, and I just you know, sit there and I can't pull myself away because they're just these fascinating little stories that are mind-benders, and, and, uh, and basically there's this big switch at the end, right? You, you think this person is the crazy person, Right? And then at the very end, it's like, whoa, they were the one who was saying, and this, these people that were the crazy people, right? And that's what's going on here. And so you can demonize Jesus all you want, but it won't change the fact of who he is and what he has done to save you from your sin. And you can either throw stones at Jesus like the Pharisees did, or you can throw yourself at his feet in humble submission and repentance and faith and receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. Chuck Swindoll said it great. He said, which will it be? Your eternal destiny depends on whether you accept or reject his claims, whether you're clutching stones or clinging to the Savior. What are you doing this morning? Are you clutching stones this morning? Are you clinging to the Savior? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this dialogue that you preserve for us in your word that we could get a sense for Christ's heart, his passion, his zeal for your glory. And Lord, just to see an example of, of pure spiritual ignorance and, and ultimately just blindness to the truth. And Lord, we know it's only by your grace if, if our eyes have been opened and that our minds understand the truths of your word. But Lord, I'm concerned for someone here this morning who may not know Christ, who, who may have been demonizing Christ, maybe not vocally, outwardly, but in their minds, making excuses why he couldn't be who he said he was, and there's no reason why they should submit their life to him and follow him and obey him. And I just pray that you would open up their blind eyes and deaf ears to, to see and to hear the truth today, that you would grant them repentance and faith, that they would truly throw themselves at the feet of Christ 
humbly bowing before his majesty, receiving his forgiveness that he offers through his death on the cross in their place. And Lord, that you would give us a burden, Lord, for those who uh, are still living in ignorance, who want to minimize Christ, disregard Christ, blow off Christ. Lord, that our hearts would be burdened for them and that we would find great joy in, in reaching out to them with the truth of the gospel on a daily basis, even this week. Lord, that you would direct us to people in our, in our homes, in our workplaces, at our, at our schools who are still clutching stones. They've got stones in their hands. And Lord, that we would have the privilege of helping let them loosen their grip on those stones so that they can clutch Christ in its place. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.